Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Recent economic crises have made the centrality of debt and the instability it creates increasingly apparent. In Beyond Debt, Islamic Experiments and Global Finance, anthropologist Daramir Rudnitsky illustrates how the Malaysian state, led by the central bank, is seeking to make the country's capital, Kuala Lumpur, the central node of global financial activity conducted in accordance with Islam. Beyond Debt tracks efforts to recenter international finance in an emergent Islamic global city and ultimately to challenge the very foundations of conventional finance. I'm pleased to welcome Daramir to NBIR. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Victoria. Hello and welcome. Thank you very much. It's a real honor to be here. I'm a huge fan of New Books Network and I appreciate your interest in the book. Well, we are thankful to have you here and to tell us a little bit more about Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur. And on that note, that's precisely my first question. Could you tell us a bit more about the context of this story, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur? Why is this such a good place to tell the story of Islamic global finance? I think the main reason why it's such a good place to tell the story of Islamic finance is because the Malaysian state has really done more than any other state in the world today to develop the critical infrastructure, institutions, and human resources necessary to create a functioning Islamic financial system. So it's really tried to position itself and the capital, Kuala Lumpur, as what one of my interlocutors called the New York of the Muslim world. Uh, And it's actually quite stunning. If you go to KL today and you see the cityscape, you just see tons of Islamic banks, advertisements for Islamic banks. Um, You know, it's it's very visible in the cityscape itself. So uh, I think that was primarily what attracted me to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, As you know, I had done previous work in Indonesia and I had got interested in Islamic finance in Indonesia initially. Uh, and checked out, investigated the possibility of doing some fieldwork there on Islamic finance and Islamic banking. But many of my interlocutors there, when I was doing fieldwork, suggested that Malaysia was really the place that things were happening. People in Indonesia that were working in this field would often go over for conferences and workshops and trainings and whatnot. And they all told me, this is back in the mid-2000s, and things may have changed a bit, They're like, wow, things are really hot in Malaysia. The state is behind it. There are tons of Islamic banks. There's lots of uh, infrastructure being developed to create a functioning Islamic financial system. And that's really the place where it um, is taking off. So what happened was I went and checked it out for myself. And I really found that to be true. And I think that's still true today. I mean, I think that Malaysia is really the global hub uh, in many respects largely because of this um, state commitment and massive state investment that goes back to the 1980s 
but really I think accelerated after the Asian financial crisis of 1998 and is continuing on to today uh, in which Islamic finance is, is being developed. So it's, it's really is, um, I think it's not an accident to say that Kuala Lumpur is becoming or will be at some point the New York of the Muslim world. I want to, of course, ask you a lot more about Islamic finance and also the history of the development of the industry in Malaysia. But probably most of our listeners are familiar with the fact that Malaysia is well positioned in the sense that it is between the Gulf states uh, and also East Asia, as you point out in the book. But tell us a bit about the population of Malaysia. Is it a mainly Muslim population? Is it a diverse population? What are the demographics of the country itself? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's actually a really important question because Malaysia is a very diverse country. Uh, about 60% of the population are called uh, pre-bumi or, or um, uh, putra-bumi, uh, and these are that is l- 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 um, loosely translated as, as indigenous, uh, or sons of the soil, or princes of the so- soil, bumi-putra. Uh, is the actual the term that is used most frequently. Pribumi is the Indonesian term. Uh, and the Bumiputra, they consist about 60%. Uh, the population in terms of religion is about 60% Muslim, but there are also sizable minorities. Uh, there is a Chinese population that's roughly 25% of the population, and a, or population of Chinese descent, and a population of, of Indians of about 7%. These were mainly the descendants of people that were brought to the country during the colonial period. I mean, there, there was migration prior to the onset of, of British colonialism, but uh, many of them were brought as, as laborers, um, either in the tin mines or in the rubber plantations under the British. So today, Malaysia is a very multi-ethnic, um, poly-religious country. There are uh, Chinese temples, um, Indian temples, uh, a lot of South, South Indian-style temples, um, and of course, a, a lot of mosques. So in a sense, you know, it's poly-ethnic, but the other important dimension is that since really 1969, when there was um, a a bunch of, of riots in the country, the state has really pursued a policy of advancing the interests of Mal- the Malaysian Malay population, Malay being a, a, an ethnic category. And part of the constitution, or the constitution actually defines a Malay as someone who professes the religion of Islam. So there's been a very, um, as part of this, essentially what scholars have called an affirmative action program to lift, for various reasons dating back to the colonial period, the Malay population had been disenfranchised and marginalized from the uh, colonial, expanding colonial capitalist economy. And really since the, the early 70s, the state has embarked on a concerted effort to advance the fortunes of Malays. And since they're defined in the Constitution as Muslim, um, that has also created a set of policies that have really advanced Islam and sought to make Islam a very 
visible part of being a modern Malaysian capitalist subject or a modern Malay capitalist subject. And so uh, Islamic finance in some sense started as part of that. It was part of this effort by Malaysia's long-serving Prime Minister Mahathir Muhammad, who recently, just last year, was re-elected in a shocking electoral upset uh, in which the ruling coalition, the Barisan Nacional, was overturned for the first time in the country's history. Uh, he came back, he was Prime Minister in the 80s up until the mid-2000s, uh, and he came back in as prime minister recently last year, but he really led this project of trying to create this modern Malay Muslim population that would be conducive to global capitalism, global development, and so forth. A number of scholars have written about this, uh, and the Islamic finance project, or the Islamic finance piece came in as really an effort to create an Islamic financial system as part of this vision for a modernist, business-friendly form of Islam. You mentioned other scholars have written about this. So how have other scholars studied Islamic finance in the past, and what kinds of interventions are you making in this book? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think uh, there's obviously a whole range of studies of Islamic finance. Um, there's, I mean, part of what I actually was studying was the knowledge that the Malaysian state is producing about Islamic finance. So I was doing a kind of second-order observation of this pro project of knowledge production. So domestically within Malaysia, this work really takes two forms. Uh, it's either kind of applied economic work within the paradigm of, of economics that tries to use the tools of economics to analyze Islamic finance. The other broad category of work is in religious interpretation and is in the fields of various kinds of Islamic sciences, um, mainly fiqh, uh, which is um, Islamic jurisprudence. And this work really does a lot of kind of religious interpretation, uh, interpretation of the Quran, the hadith, which are the recorded words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad and uh, other aspects of Islam in order to try to figure out, okay, what are the authentic Islamic economic principles? So it's kind of an interpretive project that analyzes Islam from this, well, analyzes, it tries to create a kind of Islamic finance by interpreting the texts and history of Islam. So those are two of the main categories of knowledge that's being produced in Malaysia and elsewhere in the Muslim world, and actually outside the Muslim world as well. What is interesting about Islamic finance is that there's kind of a critical, I would say there's a real void in critical social scientific work on Islamic finance. Now, there is a network of scholars of which I'm a part, uh, people like Lena Rethel, uh, Aaron Pitluck, um, and others who have been working on this, Bill Maher, of course, who have been working on Islamic finance from a social scientific perspective. But the intervention that I'm trying to make in this book and and <clears throat> really what inspired me to write this book was to do a book-length ethnographic project, a detailed empirical field-based investigation that really looked at Islamic finance from the perspective of the various experts who are involved in it 
and try to see what it looked like from their perspective and basically answer two questions that they were posing. One was, what is Islamic finance? And the other is, what kind of alternative does it pose or offer uh, alongside conventional finance? So those were the two main things that, that I focused on. And really, what is Islamic about Islamic finance? That's been addressed. And what is the alternative? That had been addressed as well. But not really from the standpoint of these individuals and not really taking their claims about what is at stake in contemporary Islamic finance seriously. So there's other social scientific work that's been extremely critical, say Islamic finance you know, it doesn't live up to its expectations. It doesn't live, live up to our expectations of it. It doesn't satisfy all these positive values that the Quran uh, advocates and that are in the, in the Hadith. Questions of social justice and these types of things. So there's a lot of critical work that says, well, you know, Islamic finance isn't as moral as it claims to be. And I wanted to take a step back and not that those aren't, important arguments, but really try to take empirical investigation of Islamic finance from a different perspective and try to take, try to look at it from the perspective of the questions that were being posed by the experts in the field themselves. And you mentioned that this is a sort of Foucauldian way of thinking about problematization, right? That this question about how do you work with a community of experts and, and look at the kinds of problems that, that they are posing and, and looking at and trying to solve. So what did your methodology look like with this community of experts? What kind of field work was going into the project on a daily basis in KL? Of course, these people with whom I were engage, was engaged, the people with whom I was engaged, were extremely busy professionals. Um, and there are four primary categories of experts with whom I were, was working. Uh, that included Islamic finance professionals, people that were working in actually existing financial institutions. The second group was regulators at the central bank and at something called the Islamic Financial Services Board, or IFSB, which is a global institution that sets standards for Islamic finance around the world and is headquartered in KL. Uh, the third group was Islamic economists who were by and large trained in conventional economics, the kind of Western economics you could take at any university in North America or Europe, but Muslims and often trying to reconcile conventional economics with Islam. And then finally, uh, the last group, and actually the group that I think was most interesting and makes Islamic finance most distinctive, were Sharia scholars who are trained in Islamic sciences, especially fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, and are tasked with approving Islamic financial contracts and the devices that Islamic banks and other financial institutions would use. So those were the four experts. Now, the field work presented an immense challenge. <laughs> I mean, just getting my foot in the door, I had to get the project approved by the governor of the central bank. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> initially, initially, I went through the deputy governor at the time, who's since passed away. Uh, and then the, the uh, 
he had to finally clear it with the governor of the central bank, who was a very impressive woman called Zeti Akhtar Aziz. Um, and fortunately, they were supportive of the project. Uh, and that got me an affiliation with something called INSEF, which is the International Center for Education in Islamic Finance, which was basically a, a graduate university, like a business school, essentially, but focusing specifically on Islamic finance and headquartered in Malaysia. And it's a really interesting institution. They, there are many Malaysian professors, but they're also professors from around the world. And they're students, both from Malaysia and from around the world. So it really was this kind of, I don't know, one, one of the students that I was hanging out with called it the United Nations of um, Islamic Finance, because there was some, such a diverse group of students there. It wasn't just Muslims. There were Korean students and Chinese students, uh, students from Japan and elsewhere. Um, that was one key piece of the project, was getting this affiliation with INSEF. And then from there, I initially had was hoping to figure out a way to actually work in Islamic finance. The way things, and I, I went down a number of different avenues trying to pursue this, but nothing in the end really seemed to work out that well. Uh, so that was a little bit of an obstacle, but I had the advantage of, of this affiliation with INSEF, and they were extremely supportive uh, in my research. Uh, and from there, I did a number of different things. Uh, one was I took several classes in Islamic finance. So I took a class in Sharia. I took another class in Fiqh. Uh, Sharia is Islamic law. Fiqh, obviously, I've defined previously as Islamic jurisprudence. And then I took a class in Islamic economics. I took these three classes. I listened to the professors. I went to the lectures regularly. Uh, I kind of audited them. I didn't take them for credit or anything. Um, but I spent a lot of time at the university doing that. And then the other thing that I did was I did a bunch of interviews, obviously. So I interviewed everyone who I could get to spend time with me, which again was quite a challenge because people were extremely busy. And I think this is one thing that ethnographers are grappling with is especially people that are working in kind of expert fields like this, you know, how do you get these busy professionals to give you the time of day? Uh, it worked out pretty well. I got a number of interviews. Some went better than others. But I think one of the things that was really distinctive about my methodology was I went to basically every public and private gathering to which I could get access to in which Islamic finance was being discussed. And I went to literally dozens of these things. One of the advantages of being in Kuala Lumpur is that there would be a workshop or a conference or a forum on almost a weekly basis that you could go to. And they would be from different perspectives. Some would be Islamic uh, economists getting together. Some would be Islamic finance professionals. Others would be regulators, Sharia scholars. And they would be held at all different kinds of institutions. I went to several at the IFSB. I went to some that were held by the central bank. I went to many that were at INSEF. Uh, so basically, any time that there was any kind of discourse occurring about Islamic finance, I went and I listened and I took notes. And I, by the end of this project, I must have gone to, you know, 50, at least 50 of these things. I don't know, felt like that, 40 at least. And, you know, I really felt that gave me a very solid grasp of 
this question of what, what are the problems? What are the issues? What are people talking about that they're not necessarily writing about in papers or in articles or in journals or in books, but what is the discourse at these conferences? And two things jumped out as persistent problems that these four groups of experts were asking themselves. One was, what is it that makes this Islamic? And two, what kind of alternative does it actually offer to conventional finance? Um, and in those questions are related, but they're also, I think, uh, distinct and important. And they, they, in some sense, went in different, different directions. So the, going to the classes, doing the interviews, uh, attending all these workshops and fora and conferences and so, and so forth, uh, some of them were extremely interesting. I spent a week at the Islamic Financial Services Board, basically from sunup till sundown, with a group of regulators from central banks in countries around the world who were implementing Islamic financial standards. So, and they were debating a particular standard um, around stress testing, how to stress test Islamic finance. So I spent there, and, you know, I mean, a lot of them were like, it was really interesting being with these central bankers because they were all trained in economics and they were math wizards. But, you know, I have often found myself in the position of actually explaining the contracts to them, the contracts that Islamic finance used to have these Arabic names like Mudaraba or Musharaka or uh, Murabaha and so forth. So it was, it was really interesting. So, so that was a big part of it. Um, what else did I do? I, I read a lot. So when I wasn't, when I was in the field and I wasn't talking to someone or listening to someone, uh, I usually read uh, about Islamic finance, whatever I could get my hands on. And I think actually it would have been a different project if I had done it inside a financial institution. Uh, Sarah Tobin did a book on Islamic banks in Jordan where she actually worked in, a, in an Islamic bank. Uh, but I, thought, I think this actually worked really well. I was actually quite happy with what I was able to discern using this you know, project of basically just going out and <laughs> trying to talk to whoever I could, listen to whoever I could, just get as much information about it as possible. Now, that worked because I was in this critical node where Islamic finance was a major concern. And the you know the Securities Commission would have workshops and conferences on Islamic finance. The central bank would, the IFSB would, the universities would, and so forth. And I would just go to those things, and and like you know you'd meet people, you talk to people. There'd be lunches where you could actually get informal stuff, and people kind of talking about people they didn't like. <laughs> uh, so there, there was, there was good, there was, you know, there, there were a lot of, it just, I think being in, in that environment really created a kind of opportunity to do this kind of empirical fieldwork that really worked for a project of this nature. Yeah, I feel you because the current work that I've just finished up is with also professionals in development and humanitarianism in their places of work and getting people to sit down with you. And then they would ask me questions like, what are the deliverables from my project? <laughs> These things. And I would say, deliverables? <laughs> There's no deliverables. This is cultural anthropology. But yes, I sort of felt like, you know, Geertz's shadow sort of, you know, these... I was doing these thick descriptions of small talk and gossip in the coffee room and things like that. So 
I want to lay out something that you've now mentioned a couple times, but but really pinpoint it, lay out the basic framework for some of the financial concepts or really rather contracts that are central to this story that you're telling. What was the problem with conventional finance, according to Sharia? And also, how did the early experiments in Islamic finance in the 70s and 80s that you mentioned before try to address this, this problem that Sharia had with conventional finance? The basic problem in Islam with conventional finance is the Quranic prohibition against the collection of interest. and that makes the primary, well, one of the primary financing techniques used in capitalism, uh, which is interest-bearing loans, impossible. So that's really, I think, the main problem. There are other aspects, and the kind of textbook definition of Islamic finance is Islamic finance that avoids um, interest but also ambiguity in contracts uh, under what's called um, garar and gambling or overly speculative activity, uh, which is a prohibition against maisir. And so those, that's, those kind of three items provide a kind of definition of what Islamic finance is. And for the, so the basic then problem becomes, well, how do you create finance without interest-bearing debt, without interest-bearing loans? And the way that that ended up working for the most part in, well, most of contemporary Islamic finance works is through a kind of trickery, <laughs> um, for lack of a better term, a kind of uh, a little bit of a subterfuge. So there's a so the way that a, a kind of Islamic finance would contract would work in order to evade interest would be to basically engineer two sale. So someone in need of capital uh, would come to a bank, and the bank would say, "Okay, here uh, we have this building. We'll sell to you for fifty million dollars uh, on a payment deferred basis." Um, so $50 million payable over four years, five years, something like that, 10 years, could be any, some period of time. So it'd be, they would sell the person in need of capital, the investor, the entrepreneur, they'd sell that building to them for $50 million payable, say over five years. Um, and then, you know, a minute later or half an hour later, some period, period later, the person who had just bought the building for 50 million would sell it back to the bank for $40 million on the spot. So they would walk out with $40 million in their bank account, uh, but be responsible for repaying it at this higher, this higher amount over a longer period of time. So basically what that type of contract does, and there are various techniques. I mean, there are all sorts of techniques that one can use to create these types of contracts. But what that basically does is it creates what is effectively an interest-bearing loan uh, through these two sales and the deferred payment and the markup. Now, that is still the primary contract that's used in most commercial Islamic finance around the world. And there have been, 
you know, there are variations on it to get around Sharia and to get around the prohibition on, on interest. But the Islamic finance professionals, for the most part, really like it because, you know, all their back-end systems, that's something they're familiar with. They can say, oh, yeah, we're doing it right. It looks like, you know, on, on paper, it meets all the requirements of Islamic law and so forth. Uh, but what I found that was actually quite interesting when I was there is that there is a considerable amount of criticism and skepticism among Islamic finance experts themselves about these contracts. And I found this on the part of the regulators. I found this on the part of the Islamic economists who are really pushing this. Uh, the Sharia scholars, not all of them, but some of them were uncomfortable with those types of contracts. And even some of the finance professionals recognized that, yeah, this isn't quite on the level. You know, it, it looks on paper okay, but really we're just playing a bit of a shell game here and moving, moving things around. So what then I encountered and what I think is actually really interesting in the, and I write at length about in the book is how these experts were posing an alternative contract to, um, to those, those, what they would call basically debt-based, debt-based contract. And the alternative they called equity-based. So the Islamic finance experts would make this basic binary division between these two forms of contract. So all those, you know, letter of the law, but not spirit of the law contracts, they called debt-based because they're basically like interest-bearing debt arrangements. Now the equity-based contracts were really different in pretty important and profound ways. Uh, but for the, but mostly because they were on the model of venture capital and on the model of uh, investment rather than debt. And so to go, come back to our previous example, if someone came into a financial institution and needed $40 million, uh, the bank would say, okay, well, let's have a look at your business plan. What are you going to do with the money? How are you going to invest it? How, how, you know, what are you, what, what is your uh, planned output? And they'd have a conversation and they'd say, okay, we'll, we'll, we're not going to loan you $40 million. We're going to invest $40 million in your business in exchange for some percentage of the profits that the business generates over time. And so this model of contract and their various names. One is called a mudaraba, uh, a musharaka works along analogous principles, but these are basically joint venture uh, equity-based contracts in which that involve partnerships. And importantly for Islamic economists, profit sharing and risk sharing. They're premised on risk sharing. So they would say those debt-based contracts were really premised on risk transfer, the transfer of risk, because the financial institution didn't want to bear any of the risk. And these interest-based or the, the, the equity-based contracts would be, would be profit-sharing and risk-sharing contracts in which you'd effectively create a kind of venture capital type arrangement or a joint venture between two partners who then would share in the profits of the concern. And 
So what I found was that there was this basic distinction between these two types of contracts and that there was actual concrete efforts being undertaken in order to implement the equity-based investment contracts opposed to these debt-based ones. You were giving examples from uh, the high level of finance, $40 million and such. But in the book, one section that I found really useful was when you were discussing the difference that this equity-based kind of system would play in the context of, for example, a student loan that someone was taking out, which certainly will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. So it can work also on the personal level as well. Could you explain that example that you gave in the book? As I said, I think it'll be helpful for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. So this is another way in which this equity-based investment-oriented system would work. So in it, as you know, and, and I know, since we both are likely still paying off our student loans, I, I don't know about you, I, I, I still am <laughs> uh, all these years later. Um, so, you know, a student loan works, you go in, you borrow money to get an education, $20,000 today, what, students are borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you get a maybe a grace period after you graduate, and then at some point you have to start paying the loan back and there's a fixed interest rate, and you pay it back over your career as you make money. Um, so, and that's kind of the conventional model in which education is financed in Canada or in the US, um, I guess increasingly in Europe as well. Now that education, according to Wendy Brown, no longer seems to be a public good. And that, you know, that, that creates a certain set of incentives on the part of the student, of course, because if you're making the calculation of what kind of loan am I going to have to pay back, you then that starts to impact your choice of field, your major, uh, what career you go into, and so forth, right? So there are a whole set of effects that that decision makes. Um, Wendy Brown's gone at great length about, about that in her work on neoliberalism and higher education. Uh, now, under this more pure Islamic model, the profit-sharing, risk-sharing, uh, equity-based model, the provision of financing for a student's education is not motivated through a loan or not, not, not operationalized through a loan, but through an investment. And what that means is the the investor, which could be the government, it could be a financial institution, uh, it could be some other organization, says, okay, well, we're going to finance the cost of the education that you need, say $100,000, and then you will pay us a percentage of your salary uh, over uh, your your career or a term of your career, right? And if you make a lot of money, if you become a um, a investment banker or a hedge fund manager, then they're going to do really well. And if you become a school teacher or a you know social worker or increasingly uh, adjunct professor, I they're not going to do as well. Um, so basically, it's it's an investment model rather than a debt model. And it sounds like well that will just incentivize people to choose these. You know, also, just like the, the debt model incentivizes people to choose these lucrative careers, uh, the investment model would too. 
But since, but the Islamic finance experts would argue that, well, since it's a percentage of your income, it could be indexed to a percentage of your income, you wouldn't really be uh, under pressure to pay back, um, you know, you, you wouldn't really be under pressure to, to necessarily choose a lucrative career. You have to pay back something. And then uh, one other argument that's often leveled against those kind of contracts is that, well, the institutions will only lend to people that are going into business or into law or into engineering. You know, those are the good investments and the people that go into philosophy or Greek and Roman studies or um, anthropology, you know, those are, those are poor investments, so they won't get any financing. But the Islamic finance experts would say, well, no, because then you could also have the government, you could have the government make this kind of financing available to everyone, just as, 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 as it, you know, does elsewhere. Uh, so it would be kind of a rethinking of the public education model, but it would make it in such a way that students don't graduate with this crushing debt that they all of a sudden have this extreme pressure to pay back, right? They'd know going in that they'd have to pay back, you know, 5% of their income a year for some set period of time. But uh, the risk would be borne by both parties. It would be borne by the financial institution or the government body or the investor on one side and by the, the, um, the student and future professional on the other. So that's, that's kind of one way in which this, this equity-based model really begins to rethink some of the classic conundrums that um, students are faced with when they are put in the position of financing their education. Now, you already mentioned that there's four types of experts with whom you were working. And one of the types of experts that perhaps, again, our listeners might be less familiar with would be the experts in Sharia who are um, helping to advise these banks. What was their role in particular? Were they going to the banks? Were they, were they based elsewhere? What's that level of, of professional expertise? Yeah, these were really interesting figures. For the most part, they would have advanced degrees from um, Western universities in Islamic studies or the history of Islam, uh, and often also from Middle Eastern universities. In fact, I think the most highly prized Sharia scholars in Malaysia would often have one graduate degree from, say, the University of Sharjah or the University of Cairo um, or the University of Jordan and one degree from, like, the University of Birmingham in the UK or the LSC or s somewhere else, right? That, that, that would be kind of the epitome of, an, of an, a, a really well-positioned uh, Islamic finance or Sharia scholar in, in Malaysia. Um, so most of... But, but the base expertise that these individuals have is in fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence and they are skilled in the reasoning practices the, the critical reasoning and interpretive practices uh, uh, used in Islam and they look to uh, the texts in order to interpret the permissibility of various fields. Now, one interesting thing that's 
happened is that this form of knowledge, fiqh, in Malaysia and my senses elsewhere, used to be pretty marginal. There wasn't a lot of, of demand for these skills. But as Islamic finance has grown, this has become a kind of newly lucrative field. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that every Islamic financial institution is required to have a what's called a Sharia Advisory Board or Sharia Advisory Committee, which is a group of scholars, five, seven, nine, could be more, usually an odd number in case they have to vote. As uh, a group of scholars that evaluate the religious permissibility of the contracts and devices that are being used. And so every one of these financial institutions around the world has to have one of these boards, and the board has to give its stamp of approval, say, yes, we've read this, and this contract is in compliance with Sharia, with Islamic law. Uh, so those are pretty high-level positions, and they often go to uh, established scholars. And actually, there's been some work on this. One, um, David Bessens in Belgium has uh, shown that there's actually a kind of global Sharia elite, a network of mm, several dozen of these scholars from around the world who sit on a disproportionately high number of Sharia advisory boards for various financial institutions. And that's created a little bit of turmoil in the field because, you know, it's, it's created a kind of knowledge hegemony in which there are these certain star scholars who occupy um, positions on these Islamic banks in, you know, Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Egypt and um, uh, the, the Emirates, and so forth, Qatar, um, and even in the West, in, in the UK or the US. Um, now, Malaysia actually has been very, had a lot of foresight in setting up the regulations around these Sharia advisory boards. And one of the things that they did is that they mandated that a Sharia scholar can only serve on one on the board of one financial institution at a time in Malaysia. So you can't be, I mean, there's over 20 Islamic banks in Malaysia. There are a bunch of Islamic insurance companies and other Islamic financial services companies. But if you're a scholar at, say, um, uh, City, um, uh, Citibank's Islamic division, in Malaysia, you can't be on the board of any other bank. You can't be on HSBC's Sharia Advisory Board. You can't be on Standard Chartered's Sharia Advisory Board. You can't be on Maybank, uh, the biggest Malaysian bank's Sharia Advisory Board. So what that has actually effectively done is it's created uh, a bit broader of a Sharia expertise base and a broader network of scholars and also positions for junior scholars to come up and sit on these boards and get experience and it's actually been part of what's, I think, made the Malaysian system so strong.
One of the sections that I think will really resonate with our listeners, uh, assuming that they're scholars of religion anyway, tackles the question about religious authenticity, and it's it's on point with what we've been talking about as well. You trace why the people with whom you work keep raising this issue about authenticity. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means and how you write about it in the book? So that really comes down to this question of what's Islamic about Islamic finance? <laughs> Uh, and I think, you know, the, the central question is really this question about, you know, what, what kind of financial system does the Quran, the writings about economic relations in the Quran and in the hadith, the words and deeds of the, the recorded words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, and as Islamic history, what kind of, um, tools what kind of devices, what kind of instruments do the, does that tradition provide to create actually existing Islamic financial contract uh, that will work in a contemporary modern capitalist world? And so that, so one of the ways in which the question of authenticity gets posed is around those um, around that that tension, you know, uh, more analogous, uh, really along the lines of what I was describing earlier about this tension between the types of contracts that meet the letter of Islamic law and those that people think really meet the spirit of Islamic law. Um, so that's one way in which this issue of authenticity gets worked out. Another way, in increasingly when I was doing fieldwork, and when I started this project back in 2010. This wasn't talked about as much, but as I was finishing up in 2015, uh, it became more prevalent was this idea of the makasid, which is the intent. Makasid al-Sharia is the intent of Sharia. And so there's a whole scholarly tradition that has basically sought to interpret the Quran and the Hadith uh, in such a way that it looks for the underlying meanings. You know, why is it that the Quran is tells us to do this? What is the what is the what is the meaning behind, say, this prohibition on the collective of interest? And that's where you get these kind of interesting interpretive projects where people say, well, really, what that is is an injunction toward profit sharing or an injunction toward risk sharing. Because, well, why risk sharing? Why profit sharing? Well, one of the things that Islam uh, is trying to promote is, as many world religions also do, is social cohesion, right? It's trying to prevent the forces that might break social bonds apart from doing so. And so um, these makasid contracts, so, so by reading this, using this kind of makasidi approach, looking at the intentions of Sharia, um, the the scholars will say, well, what it wants is a profit sharing because that creates stronger solidarities, stronger collective relationships. And, you know, that's ultimately an Islamic value. So as whereas Western capitalism, you know, is about the individual and is about um, survival of the fittest and people rising or falling based on our, their own merits, they would say something like, well, you know, Actually, Islam is, you know, people 
people want to make profits and people want to do well and people want to live well and, and they work hard for that, but they don't want to do so at the cost of social cohesion and social breakdown. Now, of course, given what's ha happening in the world today with um, you know, the, the dissension in, in Western capitalism after 40 years of neoliberalism and um, the, 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 the supremacy of the market and the over, overwhelming commitment to the market, and now the backlash against that, well, maybe we have something to learn uh, from these arguments, these seemingly arcane arguments about religious authenticity that are taking place in Islamic finance. I want to just circle back before closing to talk again about methodology just a little bit, but more specifically memorable moments during your field work. Is there something that is really memorable for you, either that you included in the book or something that you didn't manage to work in? Memorable moments. Uh, yeah, let me think. Um, possibly the most memorable moment was this workshop that I was alluded to briefly previously, I was sitting in this five-day-long workshop, and it was at this Islamic Financial Services Board office, uh, and some of it was so technical, I was just like, I mean, it was really hard. I mean, I really had to concentrate and focus, and it was really exhausting. Uh, but at one point, a representative came in to talk to the group, you know, this group of central bankers from various uh, regulatory institutions around the Muslim world that, that were trying to develop Islamic finance. This guy from the Central Bank of Malaysia came in and he said this really simple thing, which was, well, yeah, one of the things that Islamic finance does that makes it better than conventional finance is it puts limits on leverage. Um, now, leverage is a complex and technical concept, but basically what it amounts to is borrowing money and then putting that investing that money in it, investing with borrowed money <laughs> so when one does that you can make a lot as people were doing before 2008 but if the economy starts to go south and uh, those investments start to go bad they can often do so in um, kind of domino effect ways that then cause put the whole system at risk right and so leverage and, you know, basically a, a lot of the diagnoses of the 2008 crisis have identified to leverage as one of the, the, the overuse of leverage by Western banks as a primary culprit. Well, leverage is a creature of debt. Leverage is a creature of debt-based finance. And you would never get this if you read someone like David Graeber, because he doesn't understand this. But um, if you have too much leverage in the system, you create this very volatile, very risky system. And part of what these equity-based contracts do is that they require much fine, they, well, they put limits on leverage because you simply can't borrow money that you don't have. Um, and so that moment at which this became clear, and he said this in his very simple terms, is really, I think, the moment that says, Man, that is really the message here. You know, it's a complex and hard concept to understand, particularly for people who don't do economics or finance. But once you see 
the destructiveness of leverage and the fact that it led, I mean, Arjuna Pottarais mentioned this in Banking on Words, you know, this kind of disproportionate effects of the way in which conventional finance works in which the people that are at the center, the financiers, really benefit from all the upside of risk and then socialize the losses. And where most of the rest of us aren't benefiting from risk at all, if you put limits on that and, and, and the people that are benefiting from the upside of risk are primarily or oftentimes using these using leverage to do so, basically borrowing money to invest that capital to make even more money. Uh, that becomes a moment you say, well, maybe there's some real wisdom here and maybe what's out of stake and we need to really take these lessons seriously. The lesson that, you know, an equity-based system will put limits on debt and by putting limits on debt, you put limits on leverage uh, and that creates more stability and less volatility uh, and maybe less of these incredibly destructive crises that we're still it, it, mired in. I mean, you know, you can't look at Trump or at Brexit or at many of the really frightening political developments that have taken place around the world in the last five years or so and not trace them at some level to, I wouldn't say the financial crisis, that would be too epical, but to this longer period, neoliberal period that really goes back to the late 70s and early 80s that has created this volatile uh, economic system that is working quite well for a very small number of people and not very well for the vast majority. And in the book, you really helpfully also offer another example, sort of similar to the example that I raised before about student debt. But when you were talking about this question about leverage vis-a-vis property, and that's certainly what we heard about a lot after the 2008 crash was the folks at an individual level, perhaps who were borrowing money in order to buy properties and then borrowing more money on those properties in order to buy more properties. But as you point out in the book, this is also and mainly actually happening at a much larger financial level. And there's some statistic now I'm forgetting in in the book, but um, about the, the amount of money in the context of the U.S. economy of $3 trillion or whatever it is, but the amount of that that is actually leverage and, and right. not, not actual um, real economy, as your, as your interlocutors would put it. Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. They, they would call it vaporware. You know, vaporware. they say, look, Wall Street, right. Wall Street, it's, you know, they're, they're investing money on money. They're, they're borrowing money on money. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a, uh, it's, it's all vaporware. <laughs> I remember when one guy was telling me about this and he was like, yeah, we really have to change this. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, what's, what's the reality of it? I can't see the future. I mean, the way that I conclude the book is to say, as I think you alluded to previously, is that the, the gamble that Malaysian planners and the state has made is that it's sitting at the crossroads of, on the one hand, to the West, the world's largest source of surplus capital, the petro wealth of the Middle East, and to the East, the world's greatest site of industrial production, uh, East Asia, primarily China, but also Korea, 
Japan, um, Vietnam, Indonesia, and so forth, Thailand. Uh, and so the real dream is that rather than the surplus capital going as it does now to New York, to Wall Street, to the city of London, and invested in places like Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch or Citibank, uh, it will in fact go to the Islamic Wall Street that the Malaysian state is trying to create in Kuala Lumpur. Fantastic. So this gives us really a sense both of the way that the Malaysian state and folks who are propelling the Islamic banking industry are thinking about trying to reconfigure global finance. And at the same time, as you've noted a couple of times, it also gives us really good uh, food to think with about what kind of a system exists also in the kind of conventional finance that we every day, whether we're Muslim or not, are embedded in within a country like Canada or the United States or in Western Europe. Exactly. So what are you working on now? Still finance, pulling pulling long hours with regulators, or are you doing something different? No, actually, I have a new project that I'm working on, and it's got three prongs. I'm actually setting up something that I'm calling the counter-currency lab, which is uh, basically an effort to look at money as an object of socio-technical uh, intervention. And so while I was doing this, this project in, on Islamic finance, the problem of what money is became extremely acute. It's a, a really problematic question in Islamic finance because, you know, you can have as much alternative contracts and equity-based contracts and investment-based contracts at, as you want. But at the end of the day, you still are using state-issued money, whether that be, or state-issued fiat currency, whether that be Malaysian ringgit, US dollars, uh, British pounds, Canadian dollars, whatever you have. And at the end of the day, a lot of that money, the vast majority of it, is produced through the issuance of debt, right? When a when a bank issues a loan to buy a house uh, for, say, you know, $200,000, well, the bank doesn't have $200,000 in its vault. It basically takes $20,000 that it has on deposit from people's paychecks and, uh, and creates another $180,000 out of thin air to essentially uh, finance that loan under the expectation that, you know, the, that will create a steady stream of, of, of interest and mortgage repayments and that the people that put in the original $20,000 won't come looking for their money all at once and so forth. So that's the way money works in any modern economy for the most part. And 90, over 90% of it in North America, 90, over 97% of it in the UK is, um, is that form of money. It's not the, the bank notes and coins that we carry around in our pockets. So, but it, then it becomes a problem in Islamic finance because, well, if, if you don't have interest-bearing debt, where does the money to lubricate the system come from? So this counter-currency lab I'm developing, I'm just getting it off the ground now, is really working on three aspects of what I'm calling the 
technopolitics of money. One is this question of how does money work in Islamic finance. The other, I've become interested in how money has become an object of political mobilization. So increasingly, groups in civil society are advocating for reform of the creation of money and stricter limits on the ability of banks to have this incredible power to basically create money out of thin air through issuing a loan. Uh, and the primary group that's working on this is in the UK, but there are others in Europe and in um, North America that I'm interested in as well. And then a third aspect of this is I'm actually looking at alternative currencies and particularly efforts to create community currencies and other kinds of monetary alternatives. And at the University of Victoria Department of Anthropology, where I'm based, uh, we've recently, just in the last few months, acquired a very interesting collection of one of the earliest modern alternative currency experiments, something called the LET system, which stands for Local Exchange Trading System. It's basically a way of keeping an account in a local community of exchanges of goods and services between members of that community in a unit of account that is virtual uh, and circulates alongside state money. Uh, and it's, it was just up in a place called Comox Valley, which is in the middle of Vancouver Island. Uh, and the person that started it, a guy called Michael Linton, uh, if you read any of the sociology or anthropology of money, this experiment is often credited with... Uh, with being the first modern alternative currency of this type. Bill Maher has written extensively about this. Keith Hart, another economic anthropologist. Nigel Dodd, in uh, his big recent book on money, The Social Life of Money, has written about it. Uh, and the, they all kind of. What's the era that. It's in the 1980s. It was uh, started in 1983, and it lasted in various starts into the 90s. Um, in various manifestations, but the kind of heyday was in the 80s. And so, yeah, we've recently acquired the entire archive for this, um, this local mo money experiment. And I'm currently organizing students to uh, inventory it. And I hope to be doing some theses and dissertations out of it as well. So, and we hope to eventually accession it to University of Victoria's special collections branch of the university's library. So yeah, those are that's kind of where I'm at now is, is, is kind of really thinking deep about what money is and getting back into the anthropology of money. You know, uh, I'm teaching a really fun class now called Money and Culture for first year students. And we get into all this great stuff that we really make this thing that we take for granted seem quite strange indeed. The, the classic uh, anthropological task. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been fascinating to hear about your work. Well, thank you very much, Hillary. I'm really delighted that you found the project interesting and thrilled that we had this opportunity to have this conversation.